Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John chapter 5. The Gospel of John chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 33 through 47. This, actually, 31 through 47 this morning. Verses 31 through 47. I want to kind of give you an overview of what's going on here because I think it's going to help us launch into our text this morning. And uh, I want you to notice there's a contrast going on between the Samaritans and the Jews. Now remember, the Samaritans were what? Half Jew, half Gentile. So the Jews looked at them as being unorthodox and we'll call them the untouchables. They didn't even want to go to the land. Okay? Remember we talked about that last couple, last many weeks? They would go around Samaria to go to Galilee, okay? Because they wouldn't, they wouldn't want to become unclean. They, they were the downcast. They were the not right people. They're the ones that you, did not want, you would not want to associate with or be seen with, actually. Because then you would get a bad reputation being seen with them. That's what they were like. But I want you to notice the contrast here because in chapter 4, Jesus did not go around Samaria. He went through it and met the woman at the well. Now, we've been in that passage, but I want to remind you of a couple of things. Number one, there was no miracle or no sign done in Samaria. Okay? All the miracles and signs were done in Galilee and around Jerusalem, okay, in Judea area. So I want you to make that observation. Number two, the Samaritans did not have a problem with the testimony of Jesus compared to the Jews. Chapter 4. Listen to chapter 4, verses 39 and 40, 41 and 42. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed on him because of the word of the woman who came and testified to them. And she said, he told me all things that I have done. And this guy never knew me. How did he know this? Verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And they, he stayed with them for two days. Well, what did he teach them about himself, obviously? But look at 41 and 42 of chapter 4 real quick. Many more believed why. What's the reason? Because of his word, his testimony to himself or of himself. Verse 42, and they were saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world based upon Jesus' testimony of himself. Now, in contrast to the Jews, go to chapter 5. He heals on the Sabbath in Jewish territory, no longer in Samaria, no longer with these, what they would call, I hate the harsh term, I know it's not politically correct, but half-breeds today. That's what it would be. Okay, that's just reality. That was the Jewish attitude towards Samaritans. Now Jesus is back in the land of the Jews, amongst the Orthodox, and they're seeking to kill him. But what does Jesus do in chapter 5? He continues to expound and teach about his oneness with the Father, making himself out to be God, and so now they want to stone him and kill him for making himself equal with God. And then we get to verse 31, and Jesus says this, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Jesus is not saying what I'm saying about myself is wrong. What he is recognizing is that they are saying, thinking, Jews are thinking, you're not enough. It's not enough that it comes from you. We want other sources. Are you getting that? 
The Samaritans believed Jesus because of his word. They needed no other sources. They believed Jesus' own testimony about himself. Jesus now preaches basically the same message to the Jews in verses 19 through 30, his oneness with the Father, that he is the Messiah. And then Jesus recognizes that for these Jews, for the Jews, it wasn't enough for them to hear of his testimony about himself. And so now he launches in to how John the Baptist, the father, his father, how the Old Testament scriptures and even Moses himself testifies to who he is. So it's not that Jesus wasn't telling the truth. It's that Jesus knew his audience, and he knew that the Jews would not accept him for his word. Absolute contrast to the Samaritans' attitudes towards Christ. Here's what we have here. Look at me for a minute. We have the inception of of Romans 11, where the Jews are now hardening their hearts to Christ And now God is using that hardening. He's just beginning to, the very inception, to get the gospel out towards those beyond the Jews. He is at the brink of of incorporating Gentiles into the his people, amongst his people. Okay? So he's using the hardness of the Jews to graft in Gentiles. That's what Paul talks about in Romans eleven. That's what we're just just beginning to get a peek of here in chapter 5. Because in chapter 6, there's a whole group of disciples that are going to leave Christ. And we're at the brink of that. Whew, what an introduction, right? So let's stand together and let's read our passage this morning, 31 through 47. John chapter 5, 31 through 47. And as I'm reading this, think about the testimony of Christ. Is it enough? that we hear Christ's words about himself, or do we need or do we go, even as Gentiles, seeking other sources, other testimonies, simply because we don't take Jesus at his word. Let's read. Verse 31, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. You have sent to John, talking to the Jews now, And he has testified to the truth, but the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time or seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. Ouch. That was my little sub-note there. Because scathing comment to the Jews. 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. 
How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses in whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you for this powerful portion of Scripture. Thank you for revealing to us not just the hardness of our hearts, but the hardness of the hearts of humanity in general and how Israel is an example of, of, of hardness, of rebellion, uh, of, of people who always want more and more and more evidence and proof and are never satisfied. And particularly when, even when Christ is before them and Christ is speaking to them, they never find satisfaction in his words. God, the church is different. The church finds satisfaction in the word of Christ. God, may he satisfy the appetite and the longing and the hunger of our souls each and every time we're in your word. To Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing a little long there. It's a good little aerobic exercise, right? Kind of gets the blood going because we need it up here, don't we? Just, just, just a hint. Just, yeah, that's, that's a, <laughs> all right. Let's begin our text this morning. I kind of, I really gave you, I think, the background, okay, of what's going on here. He's got a Jewish audience. He, he had just recently been with the Samaritans, okay, and they believed him because of his own testimony. And he was there for two days. And you know what I really think? What we looked at last week in verses 19 through 30, where he talked about his oneness with the Father, I bet you that was the same lesson, the same teachings he was given to the Samaritans. Because they came and they believed that he was the Messiah, Okay, so it had to be something to do with his oneness with the Father, right? That he is the Christ and that he is the way to the Father. It's obvious, okay? And so he gives the same message now to Jews. But then we come across verse 31, and he makes this statement, if I, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Why did Jesus say this? Because he understood his audience, the Jewish audience, and that according to Deuteronomy... 1915, that the law required two or three witnesses. And Christ knew that. He knew to reach them, he had to get to them on their level and on their, their understanding of the law. And as a matter of fact, that's what Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15 says. Let me read it to you. If a single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed... On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. So this launches him into, here's your history of how God has spoken to you up to this point. Up to where I'm before you right now. And then we have the next, my testimony is not true. What's he mean by that? In other words, you're not going to be content, audience, until I give you others who have testified about of me. You're not content with hearing it from the source itself. And I want you to know that I'm going to go back to your law that says two or three witnesses, and I'm going to show you and tell you right now how God has witnessed about me outside of me. 
and he's going to launch into John the Baptist. Let's go to verse 32. There's another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. I want to say this. Commentators don't kind of agree. Does this refer, verse 32 refer to John the Baptist launching us into 34, 33, 34, 35, or does 32 refer to God? You'll know the Father. You'll notice that he is capitalized. Your translators take this to be referring to the Father. In other words, verse 32, there's another who testifies to me, and I know that the testimony which he, that is my Father, gives about me is true. So I think verse 32 is a setup for what follows. Here are the ways in which the Father has testified about me throughout history. And let's back up to the most recent John the Baptist, verse 33, 34, and 35. You have sent to John. In other words, when you saw him in the wilderness, when he was baptizing, you sent guys to go get him and to inquire of him about his ministry. You even wondered if he was the Messiah or not. That's what that's in reference to. So you Jews who I'm talking to, you went and inquired from him. And what did he do? What did he say? Well, he witnessed to who? He was not the Christ, but that Jesus was the Christ. That's why you have the opening of the gospel itself in chapter 1. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to what? Testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. Later on in chapter 1, we get a little more insight into John's ministry. Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I have said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank that is a, has a higher rank, excuse me, than I, for he existed before me. That's why he has a higher rank. He, he, he existed before me. That just doesn't make sense, does it? That means there must be something about Jesus that makes him more than a man. He's referring to his deity, the incarnation, his preexistence, his God. Let's just go on to verse 32. John testified saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. Verse 33, I did not recognize him at first, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Father, God, talked to John the Baptist and said, one of these days, you're going to baptize this guy named Jesus, and when you see the Spirit come upon him at his baptism, you're going to know he's my son. And then it happened. That's all John is referring to here in chapter 1. In other words, John the Baptist is, would be compared to a lamp in a dark room, okay? A lamp who brings light to a dark place. And John the Baptist came into a dark world as a lamp, not the light of the world, but a lamp. It's kind of like who we are as the church. We are a lamp in a dark world, and we shine the light of Christ on people's lives so that they might come to know him, Right? Think of a man who carries a lantern in a room to show people where to go. That's John the Baptist. Here, let me show you. Let me turn my lantern on, and let me turn it up a little bit. And we're in a dark room now. Let's follow me. Let me show you where to go. Church, that's us. We live and we speak in 
with other people that don't know Christ. And we are like a lantern. And we show people who to go to. Not just, if you want to get to heaven, where to go who? Go to, excuse me, go who? I'm going to get this mixed up. Where you want them to go is heaven and glory. But you know you must show them the way, and the way is Christ. We are those lanterns. So first and foremost, Jesus says, let me just back up most recently to John the Baptist. Now, he's probably in jail by this time, John the Baptist. Or real close, might maybe even be dead by now. We don't know exactly the timing of this. But nonetheless, the Jews knew that John the Baptist testified about Jesus. As a matter of fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all say that when that dove came upon Christ at his baptism, the Father spoke from heaven, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved Son. So he spoke from heaven at that moment as well. Let's go to the next one in chapter 5, verse 36. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. As wonderful and awesome as John's testimony was of Christ, there's even a greater one, and those are the works, the works which the Father had given the Son to accomplish. He says, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. He who is with the Father in creation in Genesis 1 and 2 the one who was alongside the Father, we said, we will make man in our image, the Trinity. Now, later down in earth time, all of a sudden God says, son, I want to send you down to earth. And I'm going to give you works to do while you're amongst them. And they will testify that you come from me, that you were the one that were with, was with me in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 when I cre- we created the world. That you are my son. What works? It's a good question to ask. What works? First of all, notice works is plural. Not a work, but works. Second of all, there is no qualification of these works. I think John is saying all the works that Christ do, did, they, they point to his deity. They point to him as being the incarnate. God incarnate. All the works he did pointed to his deity. I think John is thinking comprehensively of all the works that he did, not just the supernatural works, but all the other works as well. From the cleansing of the temple to all the miraculous signs. His suffering and the cross and the resurrection. This would include the washing of his disciples' feet that would come would be following in, in months ahead. It would include when he did the Lord's Supper with them. This would include his prayers, his preaching, everything, all of his works, not just the supernatural, but we, what we might call the natural. They all pointed to him as being the Messiah. What Jesus is doing here in front of the Jews is leaving no stone unturned. There's going to be no excuse after all this. I mean, he is just laying it down there for him. He's turning stone after stone after stone. He says, look at it all. So when he gets done with this, it, it, there's a powerful message here, and it's this. You're hard-hearted. No matter how many testimonies my father has, even coming from the son himself, you will not believe 
We're going to look at why in just a little bit. Let's keep going. Well, every time Jesus did a work, whether natural or supernatural, it was accomplishing the Father's will. The Father's will was to, for the Son to reveal himself as, as the Son of God and to manifest the glory of the Father. And Jesus says, I'm accomplishing all these works, the very works that I do, testify about me, the very things that the Father's given me. This also speaks about the oneness between him and the Father we talked about last week. So let's go on. Look at verses 37 and 38. We have another testimony here. And the Father who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time or seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe in him whom he sent. This could be interpreted to refer to two things, either his baptism, when John the Baptist baptism, and if you have study Bibles, a lot of them will refer to that. But some might also refer to the ways in which God spoke to Israel in their history. For example, if you want to write down next to that, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Hebrews 11, 1. Verses 1 and 2, excuse me. Give you a moment to turn there, if you will. Because God spoke in many ways in the Old Testament, didn't he? He spoke through prophets. He spoke through priests. He spoke through, uh, not apostles, that's New Testament. He spoke through kings even. Okay? He spoke in many forms in many ways. Listen to this. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, that is the patriarchs, who include Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses, and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. Throughout history, he spoke through po using poetry. He spoke using history. He spoke by giving visions back then, right? He spoke in a variety of ways. I, I think that's what Jesus is saying because his audience is Jewish, and this is leading up to his next point. You've even got the Scriptures. But before he gets to the Old Testament Scriptures, he's telling them, but God's spoken to you in a variety of ways throughout your history as a nation. And so he's leading up to the, to the utmost, highest form that God speaks, and that's his written word. Because he's going to use scripture, and the Greek word for scripture is graphe, and there's a big change between those words. So let's go back to John chapter 5. Look at verse 38. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe in him who he sent. The Greek word for word in verse 38 is different than this word for scriptures in 39. The Greek word in 38, which is reference to his word, is a general reference, logos, okay? But when you get to verse 39, scriptures is graphe. It specifically means that which is written. So you know he's specifically talking about the Old Testament scriptures, Genesis through Malachi. Let's back up to verse 38 for a moment. He says this, you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe in him who he sent. Notice those two come together. Believing in Christ and his word abiding in you. Take note of that. Those are not two separate things. It's a both and, not an either or. If you believe in Christ, you will have his word abiding in you. How do I know that his word's abiding in me? You'll love his word. 
You'll love his word. You'll love his word. If you do not have his word abiding in you for this reason, it's not in you because you don't believe me. You don't believe in me, the one who the Father has sent. But I'm a Christian. I just don't care about the word that much. That doesn't make sense according to this one verse right here, does it? But how many people and how many churches today talk like that? Survey after survey after survey, there's this disparity among Christians who are being surveyed between themselves identifying themselves as Christians versus how much you're in the Word. And there's this huge disparity. And according to Christ, it shouldn't be that way. And actually, it's not that way. Either Jesus is wrong or the people who call themselves Christians are wrong. And they're actually not. Which leads to verse 39. Verse 39. The Old Testament testimony. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. Christ, again, using that Greek word, graphe, scriptures, which you have in verse 39, specifically is in reference to the Old Testament that you have in your laps this morning. And I would go on to apply it to the New Testament as well because write down next to that, if you like, Ephesians 2.20. Ephesians 2.20. Listen to this. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. It says of the apostles and prophets. Let me be specific here. They are not the foundation. They are not. They laid the foundation. They are the brick masons who laid the foundation. What did they lay? What is that found? What is specifically that foundation? The word of God. That's what they did. That what you have is the foundation of your faith in your laps. It's the word of God. And then he goes on to say this. Christ Jesus himself being the what? Cornerstone. Wow. Go back to John 5 because it's going to make really good sense. If Christ is the cornerstone, that is the keystone that keeps the foundation together. You take out the cornerstone and the foundation crumbles. But here was the Jews' problem in verse 4 and 39, back in our main text in Gospel of John. They thought that in them they had eternal life, but they testified about Christ. How many people are in the Word of God, but never come to the living Word of God? They're always in the written Word of God, in other words, but never come to the life-giving God, Jesus Christ himself. And look at the next verse, 38. I mean, excuse me, 40. Though you're in the Scriptures... You are unwilling, unwilling to come to me. And what he's saying is this. The Holy Scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, testify of me, Jesus is saying. And yet you, now this would be only the Old Testament with them, his audience, but you, Jews, even though the Old Testament testifies of me, 
You are stuck in your stubbornness and you are unwilling to come to me. Wow. Isn't that something? 41 and 42, I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. Notice how this is unfolding. You don't have the word of God abiding in you. You don't have the love of God in you. Notice the very similar phraseology here. If you truly trust Jesus, you're going to have the word of God abiding in you, and you're going to have the love of for God abiding in you, or the love of God abiding in you. What is the love of God? God's love for his son. Wow. You see what he's saying here? Number one, if you really believe me, the, my word's going to dwell in you. It'll abide in you. It'll remain in you. My words are going to be in you. Number one. Number two, the love of the God, the love of the Father, the lo- what, what love is that? The love that He has for me will be in you so that you love me. Wow. Talk about a gift of grace. This is something that we cannot earn. It's a gift from God Himself. The personal pronoun in verse 39 is so strong. You, you. I think at this point, he's not just talking about Jews in general. He's specifically eyeing. He's gazing at the Jewish leaders right now because they're the ones that really were searching the Scriptures, right? They had clear access to the Old Testament. He's pointing them out. You, it's emphatic. You search the Scriptures. And you think your search of the Scriptures is going to save you? No. The whole purpose of the scriptures is to bring you to me. But you're in your stubbornness or unwilling to come to me. That just blows me away. That people could be in the word of God and never come to God of the word. To me, that's the worst possible place to be. That's worth it an atheist. At least an atheist is bold and up front and there is no God but this is a person who is self-deceived that's what makes this so pitiful, bad is self-deception you're so close just think how close these people are but yet so far wow you know what the problem was they sought the scriptures for the wrong reason That's what this comes down to. They search the scriptures for the wrong reason. Instead of searching the scriptures to learn about Christ, they search the scriptures to set up their own form of righteousness. Instead of coming to scriptures to search for Christ because he is the righteousness of God, they took the very same scriptures and tried to develop a system of their own righteousness. Turn with me to Romans chapter 10. Paul More than anybody understood this. He wrote about it in Romans chapter 10. The first three verses of Romans chapter 10. I'm going to back up to chapter 9, just verse 30. 
because these chapter breaks and verse numbers are not inspired, okay? So you know that. When Paul wrote this, he didn't put the number 10 in there, okay? And one, two, three, four. No, he didn't, okay? That came later on. It helps a lot, okay? Chapter 9, verse 30. But shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attain righteousness? They didn't pursue it. How'd they get it? You didn't pursue it. How'd you get it? Right? It makes, how can you get something you never pursue? Right? I love how he argues this. How did they attain it? They didn't pursue how, how can you win the Super Bowl when you play the first 16 games of the season going to the playoffs? Guys, that was for you. Can't. But they did. Even the righteousness which is by faith. They did it by faith. Here you have this. You have the Jews pursuing a righteousness that they formulated of their own. And then you have folks that humbly come to Christ and say, no matter how hard I pursue righteousness, it's never going to meet up with the righteousness of Christ which is the righteousness of God, the very righteousness I need to be before God in all eternity, to stand before the holy and holies and not be consumed with the wrath and fire of God, the righteousness every human being needs in order not to be consumed and overcome by God's judgment and wrath is the righteousness that he gives and provides in Jesus Christ. And Paul's saying it's by faith. You, you can't pursue this one. You can't earn this one. You've got to come to Christ. He goes on to say, but Israel, verse 31. Uh-oh, here, here's the illustration. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at the law. They pursued righteousness by looking at the Ten Commandments and striving and pursuing to obey that the best that they could, but never arrived to the fulfillment of that law. Why? Verse 32, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. Here's what they did, Paul says. They stumbled over the stumbling stone who is Christ. You see, why did Jesus come to earth as a man? Yes, it was to get up on that cross and to shed his blood and to die for us, but it was also to live the perfect life of righteousness so that when he got on that cross and died, the Father would raise him from the dead. Why did the Father raise him from the dead? Because he is the perfect righteousness of God. He lived the perfect life. He never sinned. And that is the righteousness we, you, and I, the church, depends on. For when Christ comes again, we're going to not look at God and say, Oh, let me into your kingdom because I've been such a good boy. No, all we're going to do is humbly say, He's my righteousness. Jesus, your son, is my righteousness. He's my way to heaven. He's the only reason, Father, why I'm before you. It's all about him. Beloved, that's the gospel. It's a Christ-centered gospel. It's one that centers upon him. It's the beauty of the cross. That's the beauty of the resurrection. The reason why the father raised his son because he is perfect righteousness. Let's go on. 
after talking about the stumbling stone in 32 and 33, let's go to chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire, my prayer for, to God for then, my Jewish brethren, is for their salvation. Paul still had a heart for his Jewish brothers of the flesh. He still wanted them to be saved. He still loved them, even though they were hardened and rebellious. Verse 2, for I testify about them that they have a zeal for God. How many people have a zeal for God? But not in accordance with knowledge. How many people have a zeal for God, but not in accordance to the Bible? Muslims have a zeal for God, but not according to the Bible. Mormons have a zeal for God, but not according to the Bible. Jehovah Witnesses have a zeal for God, but not according to the Bible. All other religions have one way, shape, or form, a zeal for God, but it's not according to Scripture. Why? Because those systems are all trying to develop a righteousness of their own. Verse 3, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. There it is. Verse 3, it just comes out and says it, doesn't it? For not knowing about God. Who is God's righteousness, by the way? Christ. Who is God's righteousness? It's hopefully in a couple weeks or a couple months, you'll have an opportunity to share the gospel, right? And someone's going to say, well, how do you get to heaven? What are you going to say? Because of Christ's righteousness, right? For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not, what, subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Here's what Paul's saying. That's why in chapter 5 of John, we see the Jews not subjecting themselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Because they're relying on their own. Stubborn, stiff-necked, here's the word, unrepentant. They were not about ready to repent from all the good works that they have done. You see, repentance is not just, I'm going to turn from the sins that I perform or all the bad things that I do or bad thoughts. I'm not just going to turn from all those bad habits, those sinful things, that sinful lifestyle, but repentance includes turning away from all those wonderful things I have done, depending upon them to get to heaven. And that's what Jesus was trying to get the Jews to understand. You've got to repent not just from your sins, but all those good, wonderful things that you have done that you're trying to depend upon to get to heaven. Because if you depend upon them, then you're depending upon your own goodness, your own works, your own form of righteousness. And when you do that, you'll never come to Christ. You'll never trust, as the Reformers say, in Him alone. By grace, by faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone. Because it's all by grace alone. Wow. So back to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Jesus continues on. After their unwillingness to come to him, so that they may have what? Life. So if you want life, you want eternal life, he says, you've got you to be willing to come to me. And in order for you to be willing to come to me, you've got to swallow your pride. You've got to swallow your ego. That's real hard for Jews who are spiritual in the day. Let me, let me fast forward 2,000 years. That's really hard for church people to do. Who have been in the scriptures, who have been raised in the church, but have never personally come to Christ who have never personally repented of their sins and trusted in Christ. 
You see, we just can't look at, oh, those were Jews back then. A parallel to the Jewish crowd that Jesus was talking to back then would be the so-called Christian who sits in the pew today. And thanks to a Christian, just because they go to church now and then, they read their Bible now and then, whether they just listen to the testimony and they stop there, or they hear the testimony about Christ and take that next step forward and actually repent of their sins and trust in Christ alone for their righteousness. So many people are close, are so close. To, they're kind of like the crowd standing around Christ, but they have not taken that extra step to actually trust Christ. Our prayers, no one in this room is like that. And my fear is many people in churches today are. Let's go on. Let's wrap up with the last, last couple of verses here. Uh, uh, just 44, listen to what he says there. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? <laughs> what are they doing? Patting each other on the back. Good old boys honoring one another. We're doing pretty good with this law thing, aren't we? You know, today it would be for women. I wear dresses all the time. I got my jean skirt and all this stuff, you know, and... <laughs> You know, we form, churches can formulate their own little sub-spiritual culture, and all everybody starts looking the same on the outside, but they're so far away from Christ on the inside. It's called legalism, okay? Well, I like that. You're, 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 just, you're receiving glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. Who do you think Jesus is talking about there in 44 himself? See, if you're seeking the glory that comes from God, you're going to end up at the foot of the cross. You're going to come to Christ. Now, 45, 46, 47, to wrap this up. Listen to this. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. Don't think that for one minute. What he's doing at this moment, he's cutting to the quick. He has got the razor blade out, and he is just cutting it on them, and he's doing surgery on their soul right now. And it's stinging, it's going to hurt, and it's going to make them mad. Matter, I should say. And I think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses. The one who accuses you is the one who delivered you out of Egypt. The one who accuses you is the one who gave you the law. The one who accuses you is the one who wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. He's the one that's going to accuse you. Why? Jesus would say, because he wrote about me. And so if you reject his witness, if you reject the Old Testament witness of all the prophets and Moses and Abraham, well, how, because listen, how did Moses testify of Jesus in the Pentateuch? Genesis 1 and 2 to start with. When he wrote down, created man in our image, Christ is right there. And John opens up his gospel with that right there. In the beginning was the Word, right? And the Word was with God. The Word was God. We started with that. John starts his gospel back in Genesis 1 and 2 in creation. That's one of many ways in which Moses testified of Christ. Another one is Leviticus, the sacrificial system. 
all that did, you know, you know when God was communicating through Moses to Israel and having to write down all the Pentateuch down and particularly Leviticus and all the sacrificial system and, and the details of that? You know what the father had in mind when he was, had Moses write and pin all that down? He's thinking years down the road, that's my son. I'm doing this for down the road when I'm going to send my son. All this is going to be a foreshadow of my son. My son. My son. That's what all that is. And so what God gave Israel to point to his son, they took it, the Levitical system and all the commandments, they took it to develop their own system of righteousness to depend on that to try to get to God. So when the son came, <laughs> no, you are not. We're not trusted in you. We're not even believing your testimony. I don't care how many signs you do. Give us more. We don't care about signs. Give us more. Why? Because we're never going to repent from this system that took us years and years and years to develop and to build. We're not going to forsake that tradition that took us hundreds of years to develop. That tradition we're proud of. We're not going to forsake that for him. What arrogance. What pride. And so he goes, okay. Moses is going to accuse you because he spoke of me. But if you don't believe in his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus was very practical here. He understood if you're not going to believe Moses' testimony of me, you're not going to believe the testimony I have about myself. Wow. Wow. This is a simple case in point of where men are in the word of God and yet unwilling to repent of their own goodness in order to embrace the goodness and the righteousness of God, which is in Jesus Christ alone. This is why repentance is so key in the gospel presentation. It's not that I just believe I want Jesus, but I also want to keep my traditions and everything else. No. Following Christ is a willingness to let, let go of everything to embrace Christ as your Lord and Savior. Because he means everything. May God open up our eyes more and more and more to see who Christ is. And he gives us that willingness to let go of everything to embrace Christ to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord God, this is nothing but the gospel himself, Christ himself preaching himself, preaching the gospel to a stubborn, traditional uh, people who are oozing with hundreds of years of tradition and self-righteousness and ego and unwilling to let go of all that stuff in order to embrace Christ. And Father, that's why in today's churches, even at Grace, the danger exists among ourselves today. The older we get, the traditions we build, and the more we look at the past and cling on to what we have done as a testimony to our trust today. But God, that is wrong 
Because each and every day we want to get up not looking at our past testimony, not looking at our past goodness or own righteousness, but each and every day getting up, trusting in the righteousness of Christ, embracing Him. Because revelation, revelation will close. Revelation prophesies that when we become before our Savior, He's going to clothe us with the robes of righteousness. His robe. And all God's people said, Amen.